0: Romans 13. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good and you'll receive his approval. I still remember quite vividly how I felt when I was in about year two and I got asked to go to the principal's office at school. I'd never gone to the principal's office. The kids that went there normally came back smarting a little bit sore on their hand or backside. Back in those days, that still happened. And I wasn't one of those kids. But there was fear as I trundled my way to the principal's office together with a few others. And I thought, what's this about? What have I done? He was actually there to congratulate us all on doing a a really wonderful job and just wanted to encourage us. (sighs) Phew! (laughs) Even when you do good, there's still a little bit of fear of authority sometimes, isn't there? If I had to summarise this chapter, we had it read, uh, in only a word or two, I'd suggest obedience and love. I think you could boil it down to something as simple as that. I think the Christian life is as simple as that. And yet, it's as difficult as that as well, isn't it? As we strive uh, to actually fulfil what's required of us as God's children. Uh, In one sense, what God requires of us is really, really simple. Believe in me, trust me, love me, love one another. Not complex, is it, in that sense? But as we strive to fulfil that and we wage war with the the flesh and the spirit waging war within us, uh, and our old self refuses to lay down and die good and proper, doesn't it? There's a battle. And it is pretty difficult. And yet... We've got no excuse, nor do we have any other option, really, uh, but to love and obey. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You love me, you love one another. Any other course of action but love and obedience, to walk in any other manner is going to lead to strife, isn't it? In more ways than one. Obedience and love are good for us personally, for our own conscience, for our own fears and anxieties. And obedience and love are good for society. Life functions better, I think we could all know that. Life functions better, doesn't it, when obedience and love characterize the way of life for a community, Christian or not. And as we'll see in more detail in a moment, love and obedience fulfill the law of God. So that as we walk in love and in obedience, there's no fear for judgment, fear of judgment. No need to fear the authorities, no need to feel guilty or carry around with us a weight of a guilty conscience. Not when we submit to those governing authorities and love one another. What's more, love actually builds up. It's not selfish, it's not ambitious like sin and sinful desires of the flesh. Love builds up, encourages And obedience keeps the peace and pleases the Lord. And it makes the task of those who are in authority all the more easy too, doesn't it? As we obey them, obey the rules, as we pay everything from respect to taxes, not coveting to not committing adultery, love and obedience covers it all. That's what Paul's saying here. Fulfils it all. There is no better way. And Paul ends this chapter, verse 14, with a summary of his own, with another way really of describing the uh, the life or walk of love and obedience, as well as reminding us of where the source of any love and obedience of ours comes from, where it can be found, in Christ. In verse 14 he writes, Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. That's where the battle is waged, isn't it? in Christ. I think Grant shared that not long ago, in the heavenly places we're seated in Christ, but it's also where we wrestle, not with flesh and blood, but with cosmic powers. But it's also in him that we find the armour of God, everything we need to be able to stand equipped in that battle. At the end of that battle, it's there in Christ, only there that we are victorious. He's victorious and we are in him having put him on, even though we wage war with sin, the world and the devil, there in Christ there's victory, not in our own strength, but in his and in the grace he's given us. And in that battle, he continually reminds us where we are to stand, in who we are to stand, whom we are to stand, in him. Because actually only there in Christ do we see, first of all and afresh, what his love and his obedience have secured for us on the cross. So when we say the Christian life can be wrapped up, summed up in love and obedience, it can be, but never on our own. In his love and his obedience, first and foremost, and always actually, and out of that, as his children, in Christ, filled with the Spirit, we go on in love and obedience as we read here in Romans 13. Because in Christ we see our own sin, our lack of obedience and our lack of love for what they are, sin against God, against his holiness, against others. We see it for what it is, but we also see it born in his body on the tree, dealt with once and for all, forgiven and atoned for. So that in repentance and faith, we know what time it is and we can get up and get on again in faith by the grace of God, by the mercies of God, as we heard last week. In love and obedience. That's the condensed version. That's the five-minute devotion version. Okay, but it's also the ground of which we stand upon for the action that he calls us to here. Last week in Romans 12, we heard how Paul instructed us as Christian believers to relate to other Christians, okay, to um, the gifts of the body, to use those gifts to let love be genuine and to give blessing to everyone, even our enemies. And now in chapter 13, he actually teaches us how to live as citizens within the state. Sort of stretching the bounds out from the church now, but in the world, under civil authorities, Christian or not. Remembering, when Paul's writing this, he's not in Rome, but he's writing to Christians in Rome. Did they have a Christian leader? That had an emperor. And at times it was pretty oppressive. There was a time of peace, wasn't there, in Rome? But there's also a time, I recall in my history, where Christians were something to do with lions and gladiators and the Colosseum. And under that regime, here's Paul saying, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Do what you're told. And I don't know about your Bible, but I don't have any footnotes saying, here's the subtext, so long as, or provided they do this, or, no, it just says submit to the governing authorities. There's no caveat. There's no subclause there. No fine print. It's not a long chapter, Um, and I've already tried to sum it up in two words, but if you want the RBPV, the Ray Bell paraphrase version, I'd put it this way. This is not inspired. Um, But simply, we should submit to and obey the governing authorities because God's the one who has established and appointed every position and form of authority. Every position and form of authority. To oppose such authorities is to oppose God. And that will invite the wrath of God. If you don't want to be on the receiving end of that wrath, if you fear that kind of judgment, well then do as you're told. After all, those in authority are there for our good, for the benefit of our society, not to evoke fear in us. And there's no need to fear if you do what's right. But if you do not do what is right, then be warned, the one in authority is the servant of God who is given their authority by God to carry out the wrath of God upon the wrongdoer in the arena of civil matters. So obey the rules, whether it be on the tax return or on the road, whether it be with regards to things like murder and adultery or greed and envy. Obedience will keep you from fear and from judgment. And you don't need to be a lawyer or an expert in the law to know all the nitty gritty details of the law. Love will cover every jot and tittle of it. So get up and get on with your grace-filled life in Christ Jesus, in faith, obedience, and love. That's my paraphrased version. We don't know. It doesn't always sit well, does it, when we're told to do something when we've been hearing of God's grace for much of our lives and receive God. But God's grace actually thrusts us into a life of faith and obedience and love. How did Romans begin? Can you remember? This is Paul telling us about himself. And he says, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith. Faith itself is the obedience to the gospel and thrusts us into a life of obedience and love. Grace is not against obedience. It's for it actually enables us to obey. Not in order to earn salvation. It's not meritorious, in that sense. But because we are God's children, we now walk in obedience and love. It's one thing for us to say that there's no authority except that which comes and is given from God. It's a true statement. But as I said before, remember this was written by Paul to the Christians in Rome. Not in a democracy. We might think a democracy is the best form of government there is, but... Even that's a flawed system, isn't it? And in the end, the new heaven and the new earth, is that going to be the perfect democracy? No. It's going to be a theocracy. It's a kingdom. God reigns with Jesus at his right hand. So despite the potential difficulties we might face in life, whatever our government system or leaders, this doesn't just apply to the Western world. It wasn't the Western world Paul was speaking into. Paul makes it extremely simple for us. Obey the civil authorities. Um, Obedience to civil authorities is called for because all authority has been instituted by God. There is no authority except that which comes from God and which is given by God. In Daniel 4, Nebuchadnezzar, remember him? Greatest ruler upon the earth at the time, the Babylon. He has a dream about his own downfall and disgrace that he's going to end up losing his mind and joining the oxen eaten with them in the the fields. And through Daniel, the Lord tells him this, the sentence, which you've just heard, is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. God rules over every power, dominion and authority. Christ Jesus now reigns as Lord over every earthly and spiritual. There's no man or woman who leads a nation or a government or a council who's not given their authority by God, who doesn't exercise that authority under the authority of God. And they'll be called to account for that as well. We may well question why the Lord would appoint Such and such a ruler. In Daniel's day? In Jesus' day? In our day? A century ago? A couple of centuries ago? We've had some horrors, haven't we? Lord knows there's numerous events taken place throughout history, and we might want to ask the Lord, what were you doing? Why would you appoint and establish that person in a position of power? And we need to ask those questions, we need to consider them, we need to question the Lord's wisdom in it, not as in us questioning God, but try to seek what the Lord's purpose is. And in some ways he reveals those things to us, but also think in other ways he doesn't tell us everything. Just last, or chapter 11, what was it Paul said? Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable are His ways? There's some things we're never going to be able to find out. It doesn't matter how inquisitive or how intellectual we might be and how much we search the Scriptures, there are some things that are just unsearchable and inscrutable. And when I was at uni and uh, with a Christian group there, one of the leaders, a little bit tongue in cheek, but also I think quite genuine. When we ask these questions, as uni students tend to do, we always try to pick up the lecturers or the teachers with tricky questions. If you didn't know the answer or thought that it was, there wasn't an answer, you said, well, Deuteronomy 29.29. Do you know what that one says? The secret things belong to God. There are some things God's not going to reveal to us. I was often left at that, but as I look it up, that verse continues. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed, because He does reveal much to us, doesn't He? The things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. And God's revealed His saving grace, His character, merciful, slow to anger, and gracious. All oh, that He's revealed these things so that we may do all the works of the, all the words of this law, not so that our inquisitive minds might be satisfied and we understand God that's actually so that we might walk in obedience. Nothing wrong with asking tricky questions, questioning what God's doing in a certain situation. We should search into the mysteries of God and man and history as best we can, but not with the expectation that we're going to be able to understand everything if we work hard enough, but with the expectation that God will reveal to us the things we need to know so that we would trust him and love him, walk in obedience, and the things we can't understand, we entrust to him who we know his works are perfect, his ways are just. I don't think it would be right to draw parallels upon every ruler that the Lord has established in Scripture and say, well, that must be why he's put Putin in place, or such and such, we could name quite a few. But why did he put Nebuchadnezzar in place? Why did he let Babylon rise up to power? Well, in the end, it was actually to judge his own people. Mm -hmm. I'm going to do something you've never thought I'm going to do. And And he judges Judah. Exile. Nebuchadnezzar, the mad ruler that he was, and so proud, even after being warned by the Lord, and saying, look what I've done with my strength and my own arm, he's brought down, he's humbled, but he is actually a servant of the Lord to bring about his judgment against Judah. And in the end, he receives judgment too, for not turning to the Lord. Ours is not always to know the details, ours is to trust the Lord. To love him and obey him in the obedience of faith that Paul begins this letter with and under the lord's sovereign hand that includes submitting to governing authorities and not resisting them now i said there's no caveat there's no subclause here but i think we can elsewhere where paul says similar things if those authorities are telling us to do something which is against clearly against god's will then we have to stand and question them don't we i think there's a place for that and how we go about that still Respecting those authorities, but maybe saying, No, I need to obey the Lord, not man, in this situation. The book of Daniel's Daniel is a really good example of that. Daniel with Nebuchadnezzar has to work out, okay, hang on, I'm told to bow down to this God and God's told me not to bow. How do I do that? Well, I need to be willing to die for that. (laughs) That's how Daniel deals with it. That's one way of it. Maybe we get to that point one day. Maybe our lifetime, maybe not. Daniel's a really good place to look at, and there's other places as well. But in most cases, when we resist authority, civil authority, verse 2, we're effectively resisting God Himself. Not just breaking the rules, although that's part of it, but if we are actively disobeying and resisting authority, we are resisting God. And judgment is the consequence of that. God's wrath awaits. Not, I don't believe, his ultimate judgment and wrath. That would go against the whole message of Romans, wouldn't it? When Paul speaks about wrath and vengeance here, he's not talking about eternal condemnation. He's referring more to God's immediate hand of discipline. We might use the word judgment, because that's what Paul uses here, in day-to-day life. I think we need to make that distinction, uh, because the judgment and wrath spoken of here is not necessarily eternal condemnation, because the very next verse... And the context explains that this judgment comes from the civil authorities. But just as they've been appointed by God and to resist them is to resist God too, I don't think we can escape the fact that Paul's saying here that to be judged or punished by the civil authorities is also to be disciplined by God. They are acting on his behalf. Verse 4 tells us that, the second half. They, the bearer of the sword, the one in authority... Um, and given authority to enforce the sentence, is an avenger, one who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. They're pretty strong words, aren't they? Talk to your grandchildren about the Avengers. It's a series of movies. But that, I believe, is a really helpful qualifier to what we heard last week. Paul doesn't write in isolation, he writes in context. We've got a big chapter 1-3 marking a new chapter, but it's actually flowing out of something he's just said. Vengeance is mine, never avenge yourselves, verse 19 of chapter 12, but leave it to the wrath of God. Now, when we read that, and when I read it, I automatically think of, well, on the day of the Lord, justice will come and judgment will come to all those who deserve it and aren't in Christ. But it also plays out here in the very real-time, immediate day of today, doesn't it? Under civil authorities, if they are avengers of God's wrath, carrying out God's wrath on the wrongdoer, that's his Vengeance happening right there, just in our own justice system. Is it perfect? Does it always work out? No. But the problem's not with the system, it's with the people within the system. The system's flawed because of the people. But here's God, he's actually set up and instituted authorities here on earth to carry out his judgement, to restrain sin, to curb sin, to keep life flowing as best it can in a fallen, broken world where there are sinners active against God and against one another. I think it's Grant who often quoted uh, Mahatma Gandhi, who said humanity is continually looking for and trying to develop a system that will fix everything, including all the flaws in people. But you're never going to find a system to do that, are you? Because it's not the system, it's the sinners within the system. Christ's the only one who's done that, and one day there will be, not a system, but a kingdom, a new heaven, a new earth, a holy city, the bride of Christ. Until that day, the Lord has appointed and established authorities to keep things running as best they can. Some places that works really well, in others it doesn't. But there's a bigger picture than what we just hear in the media about what's going on. God's doing something in all of that. Which gives us all the more reason to pray for those in authority, doesn't it? If God's put them there, he tells us in 1 Timothy 2 that we may we should pray for leaders and kings that that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Not just a nice, comfortable life where we sit back and everything's easy, but actually so that I think that's so that the gospel can continue to go out to the nations under that leadership, whatever the nation. As Tim Keller writes, Paul is saying that governments are needed to hold people accountable to live in a way that makes it possible to live together. Without the threat of punishment, human self-interest would make society impossible. So the very system of human, gov- human government is a wise one. That's pretty straightforward, really. Sounds like common sense. Really simple, but as I said, really difficult <laughs> in the action of it as well. But even in an imperfect system, we're to submit to the governing authorities. And as I said, Daniel and his friends are a great example of that submission to what was an imperfect and ungodly system of leadership. Still honouring God, at times putting your own lies on the line to honour God rather than obey man, but at the same time bearing witness to the love and lordship of God in the thick of that. Uh, David as well, we've been doing some studies in 1 Samuel um, up the hill on Wednesday nights. Think about David between when he was anointed and when he was actually enthroned as king. There's a good 15 years or more where Saul was actually trying to kill David in that. David's within the palace. At times he's running away and hiding. He's given opportunity to kill Saul. But he says, no, not for me, to lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. He honours the Lord. He even honours Saul, who's his enemy and is trying to kill him. And yet he loves and obeys in the midst of that. Wonderful story of patience and honour and security in God's providence in David. But if you don't want to incur judgment, if you don't want to fear judgment, if you don't want to slap on the wrist or a fine or whatever, then simply do what is good. Paul was telling us, obey the authorities. It's quite simple. In fact, if you do good, you'll actually get their approval instead of their judgment. But if you do wrong, disobey the authority, then you do have reason to be afraid. I've got Bugs Bunny in my head. Be very afraid. Or was it Elmer Fudd? Elmer Fudd. Be very afraid. Someone else knows the cartoon, that's good. In other words, those in position of authority, it's not, not an empty station or threat. They don't bear the sword in vain. Their power and responsibility to dish it out has consequences. They're there for our good. They're also there to serve God. They are his servants for our good, which means they don't act on their own accord, even if they think they do. And whilst it's not... In the text, I think it's reasonably clear from Scripture that even corrupt authorities themselves, all authority comes under God's authority, doesn't it? So any corrupt authority will come under God's own judgment. They're all accountable, even if it takes something like an ICAC, an independent inquiry or commission to hold that authority to account. Ultimately, they all come under God's judgment, one way or the other. Can you remember the Roman centurion? It's in Matthew 8 and Luke 7, same story. He gives a wonderful example. He's got a daughter who's sick, would love to have healed, and Jesus is walking around. He's got a sick daughter. He doesn't presume his position of authority gives him any special rights. He doesn't abuse his power. In fact, the people see him as a bit of a celebrity. This man's done a lot for us. He's been really helpful. You You should go see him, Jesus. Go help him out. And he says, no, no, I don't need that. I don't deserve that. But he has this wonderful understanding of authority and therefore he has a wonderful understanding and insight into who Jesus is. Because he says to Jesus, trusting in the power of Jesus' word as Lord, as one who is in authority, he's seen that by revelation, he says as a man who is in authority, he knows what it is to be under authority. I'm a centurion, I I lead a hundred Roman soldiers but I know what it is to be under authority. I know how authority works. I know that when a word is given, I do what I'm told when that word is given with power and authority. So Jesus, just say the word and my daughter will be healed because he understands authority. Jesus' concluding statement about him is not, wow, what a great understanding of authority. No, not even in Israel, Have I found such faith? His faith in Jesus, in the powerful word of God, is shown in the way he understands authority. It's actually informed, often we do it the other way around, don't we? We should, from heaven down to how it works on earth. But he says, I know how authority works here on earth. They've got an appointment, I haven't offended them, it's okay. Okay. He knows how authority works on earth and he says, if that's how it works here and you are the Lord of all, that's going to work out even better when you say something and it happens and his daughter's healed. All authority is there for our good. Can you imagine our roads or our sporting fields if there were no traffic laws and no umpires? Wouldn't be any fun, would it? Some countries, I think it feels like that. Um, But our authorities, the rules, the laws, the umpires, they're there for our good, aren't they? To make things flow, the traffic flow, to keep the game going, to make it enjoyable and effective for everyone. So they're there for our good, but they're also there as servants of God, verse 4, avengers who carry out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. They don't wield the sword in vain. They have the power to punish, whether that's fines or imprisonment or death. Not every citizen bears a sword. That would be quite unruly and dangerous if everyone was in a position of authority. They're having to deal with that in America, aren't they, and other places? What is it? How do we actually exercise this in a good way? And again, the fundamental problem is not with the system or the policies or the Constitution. It's the fallen, very angry, sinful human heart and fear of needing protection, but also a lot of anger. <laughs> Social order requires some form of authority. I've often heard it said, if you put more than two people, more than one person in a room, you need a leader. <laughs> Think about it. Therefore, because of this, Paul says, submit to authorities, be in subjection. For two reasons, to avoid God's wrath and for the sake of judgment. It's not just fear of judgment which should motivate us to submit to and obey the authorities. It's actually to save ourselves from the burden of guilt, a guilty conscience. Yes, in Christ he's cleansed us, purified our conscience from dead works. But you don't want to say, oh, I'm purified, right, I can go and break all the rules now, it doesn't matter. It doesn't work that way, does it? Presume upon the Lord's grace, the writer of Hebrews tells us if you do that, well, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. That system's been finished. Christ has finished that. Instead, there's only fearful expectation of judgment. Not to say that our future sins are not forgiven, they are, but if we presume upon that and say, well, that's okay then because they're all forgiven, I'll just go on and keep... That's not right, Paul says, no way. We heard that a couple of years ago in chapter 6, didn't we? By no means. His loving kindness is meant to lead us to what? Repentance, not to presumption. And so he moves on Whatever you've had in mind with governing authorities, he goes on even to paying your taxes. And he hasn't shifted gear. He's still in the same mode of operation here. There's a connection. Taxes are paid. Why? To support the governing authorities so that they can do their job. Now, again, is the system perfect? No. But you pay taxes because they're God's ministers. The authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing, enabling them to do their job. I was recently in a coffee shop and heard a guy talking to the man preparing coffees and complaining about council rates. All they do is empty my bin once a week. What's the point of paying all these council rates? That's a pretty narrow view of what the council does for us, isn't it? I wonder if the council stopped doing everything they do, how long it would last. Not just bins overflowing. Again, they might not do everything we think they should be doing, but they do far more than just get our bins emptied once a week. So, respect, submit to our governing authorities, even to the point of paying taxes. And then he speaks about respect and honour. Again, still referring to those in authority, but as he does, pay to all that is owed, taxes, revenue, respect and honour. As he starts going down that list, he starts thinking about other things and he goes on, shifting away from the notion of paying to everyone what we owe. We should live debt-free lives. Make sure you pay all your debts except there's one debt we should always have, to love one another. Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. This is the one arena, one area in Christian life that we can say to one another, you owe me big time. You owe love to me. You know that? But we should never accuse someone that way because actually their debt is mutual, isn't it? I owe love to you as well, in the same way. The reason Paul gives for loving each other and having no debt other than the debt of love is because the one who loves has fulfilled the law. Now we could stop there and spend the next five weeks working out how does the law and the gospel work out? How does grace and law work? What's this thing called nomism and anti-nomism? You know, people that are all legalists and people that are complete libertarians, libertines. Uh, But we don't have time to go through all of that. Maybe you can ask someone else to do another study on that. Um, But why not just read what Paul's saying here? Because I think this is probably the clearest explanation of it all. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbour as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbour, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Now some people would never put love and the law in the same sentence. The notion of love and law, some would say that's complete opposite. The world does that in lots of cases. And sadly, in the church too. But they're not opposites. In fact, love and obedience to God's law are one and the same thing, Paul's saying here. Jesus himself said more than once, If you love me, you will obey my commandments. Love and obedience. Love and the law. Paul's teaching us here that the law is God's guide to love. I could tell just go and love. But Paul actually spells that out for us. Well, God has. Don't murder. Don't covet. Don't bear false witness. Love does no wrong. So the law is God's guide to love. And love is the fulfilling of the law. Rather than saying with the world simply that love is love, you don't need to qualify it, you just do what you please, that's not love, that's selfishness. God is the one who defines love. He is love. He's the one who expresses and tells us how we are free to express that love. Yes, we've been set free by the grace of God, so we're no longer under the law, are we? We've been through that in Romans already. We're now under grace, not under the law. Therefore, the law's got no place in the Christian life, surely? Well, hang on. Paul's either contradicting himself or we need to dig a little deeper and try to understand. That's not how it is. The gospel... I think it's reasonably clear here in Romans the gospel actually gives us an obligation to love. A duty, even. Sounds like a heavy word, doesn't it? What about a delight to love? The gospel sets us free to love because we've been set free from sin. All of our lack of love has been forgiven. I don't have to carry that burden anymore. I don't have to make up for it. I don't have to justify myself, nor do I have to protect myself because I can trust God. So I'm actually free to love. And obviously primarily in the Gospel, God demonstrates love to us, doesn't he? Romans 5, God has demonstrated his love for us in this, that whilst we were still sinners... Christ died for us. So he's given us the great example of love, but he's also enabled us to love in Christ Jesus. Sam Bolton, um, English Puritan from the 17th century, looking at this whole matter of law and gospel, and I think this is good and clear, he suggests the law leads us to Christ and the gospel. The law tells us, shows up our sin, For what it is, it says the only way, the law can't make us righteous. Instead, it leads us to Christ and to the gospel. The law cannot justify us. And then Christ and the gospel leads us as believers back to the law to teach us how to live as the, the rule of life. The law leads us to Christ and the gospel. Christ and the gospel then leads us back to the law, freed from all the condemnation of the law and able to live in that way to walk in the way that Paul is urging us to walk here. Love teaches us the positive side of those commandments. You don't commit adultery, instead you love your neighbour, your own husband your wife. You don't murder, instead you love. You find ways to give life, not take life. You find ways to build up and encourage, not tear down and discourage. You don't steal from someone else, you don't take from others, that's not love, instead you give to them, you be generous. You show hospitality rather than greed. We might see the law as a whole lot of prohibitions. I've asked you before, what was the command God gave in the garden to Adam and Eve? You shall not eat from the tree. That's what we think about the command, isn't it? No, it's not. You are free to eat from any tree in the garden. The law is not all about restraining us and prohibiting us. It's about freedom and teaching us where the boundaries of that freedom is so we can enjoy the freedom. And isn't that what God has done for us in Christ? He loved us and gave himself up for us. He continues to love us. And so as his children, by the mercies of God, we are called and commanded and empowered by the Spirit to do the same. We need to move on. Paul knows that we don't love well, that we don't do it perfectly, which is one reason he goes on to say, I think, what he says next. Neither does he shy away from our obligation that we have as children of God to love. Besides, he says, verse 11, you know what time it is. Like I said earlier, it sounds like my mum when I was young and liked sleeping in until the very last minute. We had a bus stop just outside our front door. And uh, when I was cheeky enough and probably in high school, I would sit there at the front window with my breakfast, my two wheat beaks or whatever it was. And as I heard the bus, I could see the bus, I could put that down and race out the door ready to go and jump on the bus. Most, most of the time. I did like to sleep in and have long showers back then, much to my dad's chagrin. But you know the time, says Paul. Wake up, get up. Not as in, right, we're all going to be energetic and I take, I'm a slow one to wake up in the morning, so... <laughs> My wife's complete opposite. She's awake and I think she's been awake for two hours beforehand anyway, but she's bright and ready to go. I'm sort of slow. I think I've got thick eyelids or something. That's what I put it down to. Anyway, it's not about that. It's saying stop living in darkness. Put that off elsewhere. No longer live like the Gentiles do. You're not that anymore. You're a new creation. You're a child of God. Cast off the works of darkness and put on the armour of light. And you notice... Maybe as you get older and your eyesight starts to go, it's a bit like the Christian walk too. Sometimes we actually lose sight of the light and it gets a little bit dim and we realise there's a few dark edges in our lives. And as they creep in, we don't notice. They don't think they matter anymore. And then you get your eyes checked and your new glasses or cat, I can see clearly again. And that's the refreshing grace of God in our lives. Oh wow, all that. How did that get there? And we need one another and the grace of God to show us that sometimes. Sometimes we lose sense of the times, don't we? In the book of Revelation, I've just been reading Revelation in my own reading and prayers at the moment, the devil knows his time is short. The devil knows his time is short, so you know what he does? He gets on with what he's about, trying to pull down the children of God. In one sense, we should take a leaf out of the devil's book. Our time is short, we know the time. Let's get on with what it is to be children of God today and stop living in the darkness Get on with what God has called us to be about. Or we could simply learn from Paul and Peter and those who remind us, wake up, don't slumber, come, bride of Christ, arise. You're children of light, not of darkness, so walk in the light. Every day is another day closer to glory. And with that passing of time, the light has already come in Christ Jesus. We pray, don't we? Do you pray that, Lord, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven? How can we pray that and still walk in the darkness? That's not helping the kingdom come. It's a kingdom of light. (laughs) And yet we do. We know the battle all too well. But the light has come and the darkness has not and will not overcome it. We're not of the flesh any longer. We're a new creation born of the Spirit, transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved Son. So cast off the works of darkness, put on the armour of light, walk in the light, and ultimately put on Christ. What does all that mean, all these metaphors? Light? Well, it means paying your taxes, obeying the authorities, paying respect to one another, loving one another. It means a whole lot more than that. It doesn't mean simply resisting and trying harder not to gratify the desires of the flesh. It means putting on Christ. And making no provision for your flesh. If I put on a jacket, what do you see? When I come here, you'll see my jacket. So if you put on Christ, what do you see in my life and my walk? You'll see Christ. And it's in our heart as well. Putting on Christ must involve knowing we're forgiven, redeemed, and walking as the loved children of God in union with Christ. One commentator puts it somewhat colloquially. Put into simple English, he said, Paul is saying, do not plan for sin. Give it no welcome, offer it no opportunity. Kick the sin off your doorstep and you won't have it in the house. What was it Luther said? You can't stop the birds flying over, but you can stop them nesting. Same sort of idea. Leon Morris says, Paul's not concerned here with the right way of using the body. He's warning against the wrong way. These fleshly desires that we're trying to gratify. It is this that came home to Augustine. Do you know the story of Augustine and his conversion? In the most famous conversion associated with this passage, Augustine was a highly intellectual person but found it completely impossible to break away from his sexual sins. One day when he heard a child at play calling out, take up and read, take up and read, he was just reading, he'd left his Bible with his mate, he took up the book, opened up to Romans and this is the passage it fell on. And God used this passage to bring Augustine home to the reality of his sin and of salvation in Christ. And it can still do that today for us and for others too. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Maybe if we use a different metaphor, if you've enjoyed a large dinner and then a rich dessert, you've got no room for anything else, have you? Only when we're filled and satisfied to the brim with Jesus Christ will we not want to taste the things of the flesh and darkness. Feast on Christ. Be filled with all the fullness of God. And don't nibble on the morsels of the flesh thinking you can have your cake and eat it too. Getting fat on sin. Instead, taste and see that the Lord is good. And we need reminding of this every day. Don't we? It's not that we don't know it, but the flesh forgets very quickly and we're deceived and tempted. If you've got an appetite for sin and the desires of the flesh, and and we all do in different aspects, pray the Lord might give us an acquired taste, a sweet tooth for Christ. Feed on him and don't spoil our appetite with snacks of sinful pleasures and passions. Be taught by the grace of God, which teaches us to say no to ungodliness and yes to godly and upright lives. I was going to give you a bit more of Thomas Chalmers, but we're running out of time. Um, you can look it up online, it's a great about 14 page essay um, written in the 19th century but he says this it is seldom that any of our tastes these fleshly desires our addictions any of them are made to disappear by a mere process of natural extinction the heart must have something to cling to and never by its own voluntary consent will it denude itself of all its attachments, you can't just stop the desires of the flesh unless they're replaced with an affection for something more powerful. Mm-hmm. And what Chalmers says, if Christ is the one, who that needs to be. Mm-hmm. Affection for Christ. Mm-hmm. Like I think one man, some of us used to know, used to say when smoking was considered the social sin for Christians, similar to Chalmers, well, the ashtray of the Christians is just filled with lolly wrappers instead. We just shift one desire or affection to another, mm-hmm. unless it's Christ who's actually come and conquered those things and our affection is for Christ all the more reason to tell the world just how sweet Jesus is to us and for us to savour him by living in obedience and love by the mercies of God. Amen. Amen.